The following sermon was preached at Selma Community Church, a church in Jefferson City that exists to build communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God by connecting people to Christ in community. For more information, you can find it at www.somajc.org. Okay, today, this morning, uh, we're going to continue uh, our sermon series, Christmas Before Christ. Uh, this will be the third sermon in that series. And we're going to start this morning by looking at the prophecy out of the book of Micah. Now, Micah, if you don't know, is found in the Old Testament, and it is one of the 12 minor prophets. The prophets of the Old Testament uh, were not divided into some geopolitical caste group uh, to where some of them belong to, like, the upper echelon of the Jewish society and some to the lower echelon, um, nor were the prophets divided into those that were considered to be more relevant or to have more prophecies or to be more prophetic. The books that we consider prophecy are simply considered major and minor, determined by the length of the book. Micah happens to be one of the 12 minor prophets. Micah had a ministry, um, mostly to the people of the southern kingdom of Judah, that lasted somewhere between probably about 20 and 25 years. His ministry spanned basically the reign of three kings, uh, biblical historians suppose that his his prophecy and his service to God began somewhere uh, with King Jotham around 735 B.C. and was coming to an end somewhere uh, in the reign of King Hezekiah around 710 B.C. Now, a prophet's ministry was to bring God's word of repentance. That prophet's job was to tell the people of their sins, to remind them of their sins, and to ask them to repent of those sins. And this is exactly what Micah was going about during, doing during the time of his service. He spoke out against the people of Israel's, primarily their sexual immorality, but also their injustice to the poor. And along with these, he also prophesied where the new Messiah was going to be born. And that's where we're going to turn our focus this morning. Please open your Bibles, if you will, uh, or use your Bible apps, whatever you have, to the book of Micah, chapter 5, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. If you don't have your Bible or your app with you, there's some black Bibles, pew Bibles there on the seats. Uh, Grab one of them. And if you're going to be using those, um, our scripture reference is going to be found on page 730. So if you will, once you find our scripture passage, if you're able, please stand with me uh, to honor the reading of God's word. Micah 5, verse 1 says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. 
Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity to be in your house again this morning, Lord, and to hear your words. Lord, I just pray that you will set aside the day, the weeks, um, all of those things that would tend to get in our way this morning, Lord, just open our ears and open our hearts so that we might hear what you have to say. And Lord, I just pray that you use me now to bring your word. And it's in your name I pray these things. Amen. You can be seated now. Um, Just before Jesus ascended back to heaven, he was gathered with his disciples. And he told his disciples in Luke 24, verse 44, he said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The words that we just read a little bit ago out of Micah verse 2 are but one of many prophecies that Jesus was talking about that must be fulfilled. Through Micah, God had promised that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Later on in the New Testament, we see the fulfillment of Micah's prophecy some 800 years later when Matthew writes in Matthew 2.1, he says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod. We just heard Kevin read from Matthew 2, verse 1 there. So we can see that that prophecy that Micah made has come true. And today we're going to take a look at three points from Micah 5.2. The first of these is going to be the significance of the birthplace of the Messiah. Next, we're going to look at the significance of the name behind or associated with that birthplace. And finally, we're going to look at the significance of the birth of the Messiah himself. So this morning, let's get started by looking at the significance of the birthplace of the Messiah. Micah's prophecy said, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. By all counts, Bethlehem was totally insignificant in both size and notoriety compared to any of the other cities around it, like Jerusalem. The population of Bethlehem has been estimated to be somewhere between 200, 300 people at the time of Jesus' birth. So to put that into perspective, that's going to make Bethlehem about the size of Centertown or Jamestown. Um, And to really blow your mind, Russellville... And New Bloomfield would be two to three times larger than what Bethlehem was at that time. So you can see that Bethlehem, there just wasn't very many people in Bethlehem at that time. In fact, the best thing to have come out of Bethlehem was King David. Now, not that that was insignificant or anything, um, and it was a big deal, but even in spite of that, Bethlehem never really obtained any position of importance or notoriety among the cities in the kingdom of Judah. Yet Micah prophesied that the ruler of Israel would come forth from Bethlehem. God told Moses in Numbers 1, verse 2, that every male from 20 years old and up that were fit enough to fight in a war should be listed. This is basically um, equivalent to our draft system, if you would. All of the males, 20 and up, were to be listed, were to enroll. Bethlehem was so small 
that they contributed little to nothing towards this fighting force of men from the tribe of Judah. Yet Micah prophesied, the ruler of Israel will come forth from Bethlehem. So think with me for just a minute. When you think of a new king being born, thoughts of maybe a royal family, castles, large kingdoms come to mind. A new ruler, especially a new king, would be born into a royal family as a prince to the current king and queen. There would probably be some kind of grand announcement of the new prince to be born, and there would certainly be some kind of grand ceremony in the kingdom when the new prince was born. The grand and majestic castles associated with kings and their royal families uh, often had high walls around them to keep them safe uh, from their outside enemies. In Bethlehem, there were no such royal families. There were no royal announcements, no royal ceremonies, not even a majestic castle anywhere around Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth. Only a lowly inn and a manger. Yet Micah prophesied that the ruler of Israel would come forth from Bethlehem. Now I want you to stop and think with me for just a minute that God chose this little town of Bethlehem to be the birthplace of the coming Messiah should not surprise us today because we have the ability to look back over time and we can see how these prophecies have been fulfilled. And we can see how this was totally consistent with God's actions throughout all of the Old Testament. Judges 7 tells us the story of Gideon preparing to go to battle against the Midianites. Gideon gathered up, uh, the Bible tells us, some 32,000 men ready to go to war. And God said, nope, that's too many. And by the time God got through whittling down Gideon's troops, he had 300 fighting men left. 300 men out of the original 32,000 to go up against this mighty army of the Midianites. And if that wasn't enough... These 300 men, if you are preparing to go into war, you would think they would go prepared with, or armed with, spears, uh, swords, and, and weapons of war. Not these 300 men. These 300 men went into battle with a trumpet in one hand and a clay jar with a light in it in the other. And the reason God chose the least of the 32,000 men and then armed them with this most unlikely weapons to defeat the Midianites. We see the idea behind God's plan in Judges verse 2 when he said, And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. God wanted there to be no doubt that he and he alone was responsible for saving his people. And in another instance, God chose a lowly shepherd boy to go up against the Philistine giant Goliath. The least among the armies of Israel, at least by human standards, to fight this giant Goliath. They even tried to put armor on David. And it was so ill-fitting and so cumbersome that David just threw it off. The armor would have been of no use to him except to drag him down 
And right before David delivered the deadly blow to the Philistine giant, he reveals again God's plan. In 1 Samuel 17, verse 47, David says this, All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Once again, we see God chooses to use the least, the most lowly, the most unlikely, the most insignificant, at least to us, to carry out his plan. In 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 31, reminds us of this very truth when it says, verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even the things that are not, to bring nothing things that are. And listen closely to what God says next. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. O little town of Bethlehem, let there be no doubt this was God's plan that made this little town of Bethlehem significant. For it was God who told Micah, tell the people of Judah and all of Israel that it is my plan for this little town, a town too little to be counted among the tribes of Judah, tell them Bethlehem is to be the birthplace of the coming Messiah. The second point I want us to look at today is the significance behind the name of the birthplace of the Messiah. There were actually two towns in Israel called Bethlehem. The one Bethlehem was located in the northern kingdom up by the city of Nazareth and was known as Bethlehem of Galilee or Bethlehem of the north. The other, other Bethlehem, this little town of Bethlehem that Micah prophesied about in our scripture reference is located about five or six miles to the southwest of Jerusalem. And it belonged to the tribe of Judah. And it was known as Bethlehem Ephrathah. This name Bethlehem is actually made up of two Hebrew words. And I'm probably going to butcher these, but I'm going to do the best I can. Uh, the first is Bet, which means house, and Lechem, which means bread. So combining these two words that make up Bethlehem, we get the meaning behind the city. House of bread. Now, the word bread is mentioned at least 492 times. As I was counting how many times the word bread was used in the Bible, I lost my place somewhere in the book of Revelation. And last track I had, it was about 485, so I'm just guesstimating about 492. That was not true. That little fact comes out of a commentary that I read. The, the important part of that is that bread is associated with different meanings as it's used in the Bible. Exodus 16 gives us an example of bread being used to show how God provides for us. If you'll remember back, uh, the Israelites were complaining. And what did God do? He rained down manna on them to show his provisions for them. He provided food for their survival. Carried forward to our times today, God is still providing manna for us. Now, 
You can see outside he didn't rain down bread in the streets out here this morning, but he does provide for our needs. Something we cannot say doesn't happen. Every day God will provide for our needs. Matthew 6, verse 11, that's part of the Lord's Prayer, um, gives us another example of God's provision. Give us this day our daily bread. That's the prayer that we pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Bread used in this is representative not only of our physical needs, but also of our spiritual needs. So God not only provides for our physical needs every day, but he also provides for our spiritual needs as well. And then Exodus 25, verse 30, uh, gives us another way that bread is representative or symbolic of. Uh, It shows how God cares for his people. In verse 30 in Exodus 25, it says, And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. In Moses' time, the high priest of the temple put 12 loaves of bread on a table. These loaves were known as the showbread or the bread of presence. And it represented those 12 tribes of Israel. Now, these loaves were used by the high priest as a thanksgiving offering to God to recognize God's care for the children of Israel at that time. And in John 6, verses 32 and 33, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. John tells us in this scriptures that God's present day care for his people can be found in his son, Jesus. The one who came down from heaven, died on a cross as a sacrifice for the sins of you and me. So that we might know the true bread of life for eternity. Now, we've only looked at a few references to bread and their meanings, but the word bread is most often used in the Bible as a symbol of our faith and our relationship with the Lord. The other part of Bethlehem Ephrathah, that Ephrathah, that meaning, um, before Bethlehem was known as Bethlehem, it was first called Ephrathah. And in both the Greek and the Hebrew, Ephrathah means fruitful. John 12, 23 and 24 says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. When, when wheat is getting ready to be harvested, the actual plant itself is dying or dead. The head of the wheat plant uh, is where the seeds are at, and that is drying up. Um, and that's what they harvest to grind up and make flour out of. But if those seeds were planted and provided the appropriate amount of water and nutrients from the soil and everything, a new life, a new plant would grow from those seeds. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He came, he died, and it was in his death that we might all have eternal life. The significance of the name of the birthplace of the Messiah, Bethlehem Ephrathah, lies in the meaning behind the name of the town itself, a fruitful house of bread. 
This name not only points to the birthplace of the Messiah, but it also points to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And this leads to my closing point for today. And that is the significance of the birth of the Messiah. As we get ready to close, I want to try and share a story with you that Kevin and I heard at the Missouri Baptist Convention back in October uh, when we went down to Springfield. Uh, The story, as it was originally told, was told by Alastair Begg. Uh, He was a senior pastor at Parkside Church in Cleveland. And and this story was simply being retold in our convention this last October. Um, Here in about a week, we're going to celebrate Christmas. And as Christians, we celebrate this holiday as the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, a birth that was prophesied by Micah some 800 years before Jesus was actually born. Now, please listen closely to what I'm about to say next because I don't want you to mishear or to misunderstand what I'm going to say. The birth of Jesus wouldn't be nearly as significant or as meaningful were it not for his death, his burial, and his resurrection three days later. Follow along with me as I read from Luke 23, beginning in verse 32. Uh, We're going to be reading some texts from the Gospel of Luke that describe some of the details uh, surrounding and associated with the crucifixion of Jesus. Luke 23, starting in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull... There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, from the scripture we just read, if there was anyone that we could say for sure made it to heaven, it had to be this thief. God's word says, Today, today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, this is where this story begins. Please understand that what I'm about to tell you, this story, you're not going to find it in your Bible. You're not going to find it in mine. So I'm going to kind of stand one foot over here just so you know the difference here, okay? Um, This is nothing but pure speculation, supposition, on the part of uh, Mr. Beggs, that pastor, as he was telling this story in the beginning. Uh, But it's definitely worth giving some thought to. So as the story goes, this thief, the one who asked Jesus to remember him, 
He dies on the cross and immediately finds himself waiting in line to get into heaven. After waiting a few minutes, he's finally worked his way up to the front of the line and is standing face to face with an angel at the reception desk. And the angel says to the thief, can I help you? And with a questioning look on his face, the thief answers him and says, I'm not sure. Well, says the angel, um, what are you doing here? And the thief, once again, looking around, gets this puzzled look on his face and answers him, I don't know. To which the angel responds, well, sir, how do you expect to get into heaven today? And the thief, again, with this puzzled look on his face, shrugs his shoulders and says, I don't know. Well, you can imagine this angel has probably never heard this before. He's flustered. He's confused. Because he's never heard anybody say the things that this thief has said. He stands there for a minute. He's kind of pondering what's going on. Looks at that thief. Looks down. He's trying to think through his training that he's gotten to work that reception desk. And nothing is coming. Nothing. He doesn't know what to do. So finally, he looks up at the thief and he says, you, you just stand right there. Don't go anywhere. I got to go get some help. I don't know how to handle this situation. So he turns and he immediately goes to get his supervisor. And in just a few minutes, the angel and his supervisor, probably an archangel, shows back up at the front desk. There they see this thief still standing there, looking around, kind of puzzled and confused. So the archangel steps up to the reception desk there at the entrance to heaven, and in his authoritative voice, he says to the thief, by what means do you propose to enter into heaven? And again, the thief on the cross tells him, I don't know what you're talking about. The archangel thinks to himself, there's got to be a better way of getting to this. I'm going to go at it from this direction. So he says to the thief, do you believe in the doctrine of the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God? To which the thief responds, never read it. Archangel says, what? You've never read the Bible? Well, what about the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? And again, the thief just says, man, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Now, I want to stop here in the middle of this story because I want to give a little bit of perspective from that thief's point of view. Stop and think for a minute. This guy's never been to Sunday school. He never even heard of Soma Kids. Never sat in a sanctuary and sang a worship song. He's never owned a Bible, much less read one. He's never been on a mission trip to Sao Paulo with a bunch of college kids. He's only prayed one prayer in his entire life, and that was right before he died when he looked up to Jesus and said, Remember me. He never got to utter the promise that many of us have made. God, I'll follow you no matter what, forever and ever. Because what? He had 30 minutes left in his life as he was dying there on that cross. So you see kind of the perspective that he's coming from as he enters into heaven. 
So back to our story now. The archangel is standing there along with the angel, and they're both so flustered and confused by the answers that the thief on the cross has given to them. So finally, in one last-ditch attempt, the archangel says, By what means are you standing here today? To which the thief's only response was, The man on the middle cross said I could come. Because the man on the middle cross said I could come. Think about that for just a minute. Now, isn't that really the only way you can enter into heaven? When you get there and start in with this, I did this, I did that stuff, that's not right. It's all because of what the man on the middle cross did. And that leads me to our soul tattoo for today. The significance of the birth of Jesus Christ in this little town of Bethlehem can only be found on a cross at Calvary. You see, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, as it was told by the prophet Micah, would not be significant at all if it wasn't for his subsequent death, burial, and resurrection. Just like the thief on the cross, there is no sin so big or so bad that the blood of Jesus can't cover it. There's nothing, nothing you can do that Jesus hasn't already paid the price for. God's plan to restore fellowship with man for eternity called for the sacrifice of his only begotten son, Jesus, and it all started at the birthplace of the Messiah in that little town called Bethlehem. Now, I have a couple of questions for you before we close. Will you be like that one thief that mocked Jesus and refused to acknowledge him? Or will you be like the other that simply looked up to Jesus and prayed his one and only prayer in his life? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So I ask you, has there ever been a time in your life when you've confessed your sins to the man on the middle cross? Have you repented of those sins? Have you asked Jesus to come into your life as both Lord and Savior? If not, Dan and Charity are going to be back up here in a minute for a time of response. And all I ask you to do is grab one of those black pew Bibles, turn to the front of it, and there's some prayers there. Look through those prayers. And if you have any questions about what that means or would like to pray to receive Christ, I'll be in the back. Kevin is available. Please come and talk to us. Because in closing, just like Pastor John reminds us every week, God's plan of salvation demands a response. And no response is a response. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, just thank you for your word today. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here that does not know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will just convict them that today will be that day. Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the sacrifice on the cross that paid the price for our sins and allowed us to be able to have an eternal relationship with you in heaven. Lord, I just pray now that you will take over. Your Holy Spirit will just move in this congregation. It's in your name I pray these things. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the audio of Soma Community Church located in Jefferson City. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for the content or alter it in any way without express written permission. For more information about Soma, please visit us at www.somajc.org.